you want to follow along to today's scripture reading, it's Exodus uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. Starting in verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters task masters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh stone, source cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And all the work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra, and the other one Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before midwives come to them. So God dealt with the, with the midwives dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You're still in Exodus chapter 1. We're beginning uh, spending some time this year, this fall, in uh, the book of Exodus. And uh, so keep your finger there in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be talking about this uh, portion of Exodus, Exodus 1. Actually, the whole chapter of uh, Exodus chapter 1. When you're reading a good book, um, it's important to know where you're at in the book. I just want to take a couple of minutes and remind us where we're at uh, in the book. God created heaven and earth. You know, that's how the, how, that's how the Bible starts. He creates heaven and earth, and we very quickly... I destroyed the thing. We just wreck it. We sin, we rebel against God, we'll do it on our own, and we destroy planet Earth, we destroy, our own, we destroy everything. And so God immediately decides upon our disobedience to make a way for us to be restored to Him in relationship, for everything to be fixed. And the story of the Bible is God working in human history to provide for us a way to be redeemed for sin to be erased, for righteousness to be given, and for everything to be put back the way it's supposed to be, in fact, even made better. God decided he was going to do that by bringing a Savior through a particular people. And so he calls Abraham in the book of Genesis and said, Abraham, leave your land, and I will give you a land, and I will make you numerous. I will give you children upon children upon children. 
So many children, they will be as many as the sands on the seashore. And God makes that promise to Abraham. Abraham then has a child, Isaac, among others. But Abraham has Isaac, and God says to Isaac, the promises I made to Abraham are also for you. Isaac also has children, one of them in particular, Jacob. God says to Jacob, the promises I made to Abraham, the promises I made to Isaac, I also make to you. And why was God making these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because he liked them? Have you read about them? There's very little about these people that are likable. God is doing this because he determined to, through a particular people, make a savior. Bring a savior, Christ the Son as a man, through his people. And the story of the Old Testament is God bringing us his son through the people of Israel. So the key issue here is God made a promise to Abraham. You will have this land, and you will have a people, and I will bless all of the world through you. In Romans chapter, or Romans chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless the entire world through your children. Specifically, he would bless the entire world through his son who would, to come, who would come and he would be Jesus. We under, need to understand where we are in that story. In the book of Exodus, we're in chapter 2. We're not very far along, are we? There's a lot to be said about what God is going to be done in human history, but we need to understand God is going to show us how he is going to accomplish fulfilling every one of his promises to bring a Savior through his people in the midst of real history. So Exodus is the story of the history of God doing that work through his people primarily in the wilderness. So the title of this series in Exodus is Redemption in the Wilderness. Now, not all of Exodus occurs in the wilderness, but most of it for the people of Israel is in very, very difficult times. If they're not in the wilderness, they're on their way. And we want to use this as a way of understanding that God's promises are fulfilled, I might even suggest, most powerfully in the wilderness. And the reason I want to say it that way is, I'm not even going to like hide it, it's because oftentimes we will find, those, find ourselves in those kinds of places where we might describe our life in any given moment as the wilderness, or just coming out of the wilderness, or on the way into it. And we need to understand from the Bible what we ought to expect from God, and what we might imagine through his word, what we might determine he is up to in the wilderness. So we're going to look at how God is working his plan of redemption in the people of Israel, as well as in our own lives, in the midst of the wilderness. So the title of the message today is Wisdom in the Wilderness. Wisdom in the Wilderness. What can we learn in the wilderness? Wisdom in the Wilderness. First of all, here's the, I'd really just have two ideas here today, very simple. Wisdom of the Wilderness. First thing, ruthless people can't stop our faithful God. I'll repeat it. Ruthless people can't stop our faithful God. I don't know if you know how glaciers work. Glaciers, when I was in school, were described as rivers of ice. Then I happened upon a glacier in Alaska one time. I said, this is not a river of ice. This is just a pile of ice. Because if you stand by a glacier for five minutes, what happens? Nothing. It's not a river. I don't know what your rivers are like. In... Anyway, but if you stood there for 100 years, or you stood there for 1,000 years, you would, in fact, discover 
that this thing is moving. Maybe only an inch a year, maybe only a foot of your, depending on the glacier. But glaciers are two things. Number one, not terribly fast, but I might also say they are unstoppable. Has anybody ever built a dam to stop a glacier? I don't know that that would work too well. I want us to understand, as we look in the book of Exodus, God's covenant promises to his people and likewise to us, his covenant promises are like a glacier. Sometimes we would look at them and go, what in the world is going on? But in the end, when we step back and look at the wider view, we say his promises are unstoppable. This is what happened as we look in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1. Follow along with me. I'm going to read just the first seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Who is, who is Israel, the sons of Israel? Jacob. Jacob was given a new name by God. I will now call you Israel. So if you want to read it this way, these are the names of the sons of Jacob who came to Egypt with Jacob. But we're learning that the people who were born from Jacob are going to be called Israel. And these are his sons. Reuben, uh, he had a sandwich named after him. <laughs> Simeon, Levi, of course, the pants. Judah, that's all I'm going to do. Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These were all the descendants of Jacob, and there were 70 people that came to Egypt. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died. All his brothers and all that generation died. The people of Israel were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. They went from 70 plus people to millions over the course of 425 years. The time period between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is 425 years thereabouts. Joseph found himself in Egypt. You, of course, remember the story. His brothers hated him. They sold Joseph into slavery. He was then sold again into Egypt. He then ended up in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Then, through the work of God, he was then lifted up and found himself as the ruler of all of Egypt, with the only person over him was Pharaoh himself. And it was in that context that all the people of Israel came into Egypt, and they had the best of the land, the best of the stuff, and guess what they did? They flourished. And they grew and grew and grew in these ideal and perfect conditions. In these conditions, you would say, hey, do you want to follow God? Who wouldn't want to follow God? The best of the best in the best nation in the world at the time. And then we discover 425 years later, a new pharaoh comes into play. And what does it say about him? He doesn't know who Joseph was. He doesn't know who these people are. And what it says is a new king arose. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't know Israel. But he did know this, is Israel was huge. It was a people within Egypt who were not Egyptian. And he says this, if a war breaks out and these people join our enemy, we will have no chance. And so therefore, what I'm going to do is put into place a policy to limit or reduce their population. So immediately we find out something about how God's promises work in history. Here's what we want God's promises to be like. We live in life that has its ups and downs, don't, doesn't it? Every now and then? Ups, downs. Then it goes way up, it goes way down. What we want is we want to hitch a ride on God's promises, which fly over the tops of all of that stuff, don't we? 
oh, God's faithful and true, so therefore I get to fly over all that bad stuff and laugh, oh, I'm with Jesus. Good luck with that down there. Then we read Exodus, and we discover that God's promise fulfillment is not going to work that way. God's promise is weaved within the real history of our real life. You might imagine it this way. If you took a rock, not a smooth river stone, but a rough-edged rock, and then you took a piece of foil and wrapped it around that rock so it was tight, you would still be able to see all of the grooves and all the peaks and all the valleys and all the divots in that rock, but now you would have that piece of foil wrapped around it. God's promises are working that way in our history and in the history of the world. It's not operating in some other plane. God is so wise that he can work his promises out in the middle of the complexities, the highs and lows of human history and even the highs and lows of our own life. God's perfect promises are worked out in the normal, routine of our day in and day out lives, the highs and the lows. Maybe if you visited a house of a really good architect, especially an architect who maybe builds a house out in the country, and the architect might be charged, we want this house, and what you might say to, to this architect, we want this house to fit right in with the landscape. So what that architect is going to do is he's going to take pictures of the different views of the house. He's going to look at the different features of the landscape and the kinds of trees and bushes and the kinds of soil and animals. And if he's a really good architect, anybody who visits that home will say, that fits right here. And that's what God is doing with his promises in history and in our lives. It's interwoven like a perfect architect right into our lives. It's not happening outside of it. So the king sees the people of Israel, and we might think the people of Israel, since they're subject to the promises of God, would never face any kind of difficulty. This new king sees the people of Israel and says, we need to limit the population, and he's going to limit their population in three ways, and we're going to see God fulfill his covenant promises to them, even in the middle of real difficulty in real history. First way he's going to limit their population is through hard labor. Therefore, he set taskmasters, as Todd read, taxmasters, same thing. Well said. And they built store cities for, uh, for Pharaoh, and um, so what he did is he oppressed them. He inaugurated labor. There were no labor unions. There were no job safety requirements. In fact, if there was a safe job, he would give that to an Egyptian. The idea was to work them to death through injury, illness, and fatigue, and exhaustion, that they might die doing the job or die because of the job. The idea here in building store cities is to divide families up on job sites all over Egypt. I don't know if you know how biology works, but if husband is working in this city and wife is working in this city, how many kids will be produced? Not many. So he decides to limit their ability to have children, limit their ability to survive their job, limit their ability to have a long life in an effort to limit their population or even hopefully shrink their population. Look at verse 12. What happened? God sent in a chariot of fire and delivered the Israelites from any suffering, and they ate bonbons in clouds. doesn't say that. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread, or another way, the more they swarmed around. 
Now look what happens. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So see, look what God does to fulfill his promises. He doesn't necessarily deliver Israel from suffering, but he is being absolutely 100% faithful to his covenant to Abraham. I will give you many children. What's happening? They're having many children. Did he say to Abraham, I will give you many children, and it'll be like a vacation the whole time? No, he didn't say that. In the real stuff of real history, God is being absolutely 100% faithful to his promises to his people. The population increased in spite of the oppression. This is a miracle. There's no reason their population should have increased under these situations. And now the Egyptians have dread or fear of the people of Israel. And we need to make note of that fear. We're going to touch on it a little bit later. But fear becomes a theme in the first part of the book of Exodus. Look at verse 13, Exodus 1. So, as a result, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They no longer even tried to hide that they were trying to kill them. They were mean just to be spiteful. Reminds me of that great scene in that great Christian movie, Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> Who put this dirt in my ditch? Remember that scene? The guy digs the ditch out all day, all night. Is it Newman? Does he make marinara sauce now? Okay. Ditch is empty. Sweaty. Shirt off, of course. Warden comes out. What does he say to him? Who took the dirt out of my ditch? Get that dirt back in the ditch. Just to spite him. And this is exactly what the people of Egypt were doing to Israel. Who put this pyramid here? It's supposed to be over there. Put it over there. And just ruthlessly, over and over again, just trying to crush them. Ruthless men cannot stop our faithful God. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. This is what the Bible tells us about faith. All of these, these people of the Old Testament primarily, who had faith to follow God, all of these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. That is this. The promise that God was fulfilling was not merely that Israel would have many children. The promise that God was fulfilling was the children would be fruitful, and from this people a Savior would come. His faithfulness to the people of Israel was not merely for Israel. It was for us. His covenant promises were unstoppable. There was no way some little Pharaoh was going to get in Jesus' way. And that's precisely what's happening is they were living in the difficulty of God's covenant promises while at the same time knowing in faith God is going to fulfill his promises. Back to glaciers. Have you heard of something called a glacial erratic? Glacial erratic. Of course not. Who's ever heard of this? I didn't know about it until this week. I don't know why I was reading about glaciers. Nothing better to do. A glacial erratic is a kind of rock. So here's how it works. There's a, and typically, these are massive boulders, hundreds of tons. The glacier will be plowing its way down the hill, and these massive stones will get worked into the heart of that glacier. And pretty soon, these stones are being carried down the hill, 
by this massive glacier, of course, over time. So some gigantic 500-ton boulder in the North Atlantic is carried down by this glacier and ends up in the ocean in the middle of an iceberg. And that sucker floats out into the ocean thousands of miles. And what do icebergs do in the ocean besides sink ships? They melt. At some point in the future, that iceberg's going to melt to such an extent that 500-ton boulder is going to drop out of that, uh, that uh, what's it called? Iceberg. And it's going to land in the bottom of the ocean. Some scientist operating under a federal grant, probably. He's going to be swimming out there, and he's going to look at this thing. What is this doing out here? This is the kind of rock that occurs up in the North Pole. And he's going to realize that this rock hitched a ride all the way out into the middle of the Atlantic. It's, and these things are all over the world, these glacial erratics. So here's why am I bringing this up. We have on the face, let's just pretend, of the mountain in Antarctica, or not Antarctica, what's the one on the other end? The Arctic, okay, that makes sense. This proud 500-ton stone, it marks the face of this beautiful landscape. I mean, it's immovable. Nobody could move it. If you walk by, you say, wow, it's a big rock. And that stone mocks this glacier. Right, you're way over there. Now, what this stone doesn't understand is the stone is silly. He has no chance against the glacier. So what I wanted to illustrate here was here's Pharaoh. He's this great, massive, immovable rock that to anyone's observation, no one can stop this guy. And the covenant glacier of God's promises is just flowing down the hill, and it doesn't even notice him. Just takes him over and drops him off in the middle of the ocean somewhere, completely forgotten. What's interesting, when you look at the ocean, if you've ever done it, do you see what the rocks are doing underneath? You don't even know they're there. Completely meaningless, completely pointless. This gigantic stone that was so important when fixed to the side of the mountain, after the glacier goes by, completely forgotten. And this is precisely what happens to every individual in the Bible that stands in the way of the promises of God. That glacier is going to go where it's going to go because that is unstoppable. A couple of examples. Genesis 3.15. Jesus, or I should say God says this to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's saying, over the course of time, as my promises are fulfilled, your head is going to get walked all over. Matthew 2.16. Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. This proud stone standing on the hill. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. All the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained by the wise men, this was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here's Herod, this glacial erratic. Where's Herod today? In the middle of the ocean. Forgotten. Only mentioned at Christmas time. Jesus, on the other hand, is alive and well, standing next to the Father. He was a fool who was opposed to God and God's redemptive plan. Was he able to stop Christ from going to the cross? Was he able to stop up the tomb that he could not come out of it? What an idiot. I mean that in the nicest way possible. No, I don't. 
Here's this little rock standing in the way of this unmovable glacier of God's promises, and he thinks he will be the one to oppose it. And all of those who oppose this glacier are stopped. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Jesus had given a commission to his followers that they should go and make disciples, sharing the good news that now he will call a people to himself, not those who are sons of Jacob, but those who are born again into the kingdom of God by the Spirit. So now we have a new covenant in Christ's blood. We celebrate that at communion, that we might be his people, not by birth from a particular family, but by birth through the Spirit. Do you think there will be glacial erratics who will try to stop this covenant promise of God? Of course there will. There arose on that day a great persecution. This is Acts 8.1. The church in Jerusalem and all Uh, And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So now here, these people, the religious and political elite of Jerusalem in the first century say, we've got to stop the covenant promises of God. How's that work? We know how that works. Now those who were scattered went about hiding their faith, making sure no one knew they were Christians. No, I'm making sure you're reading along. This is... Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It sounds a lot like Exodus, doesn't it? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. They went about spreading the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. The foolish men of Jerusalem thought they would crush the covenant promises of God, and the more they tried to crush the covenant promises of God, the more those promises spread out, and the more people heard and the more people believed. Ruthless people will not stop the covenant promises of God. Where does this come from? Last uh, reference on this section. Revelation chapter 12. This chapter is kind of gross. I'm going to read it anyway. If you get kind of squeamish, uh, suck it up. Here we go. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So now we see Genesis 3 weaving through Exodus 1 and Pharaoh, weaving through Matthew 2 and Herod, weaving through Acts 8 and the persecution, and now we really see what's going on. Satan wants to kill Jesus and all who follow him. How does that work out? Let's read. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God, to his throne. And all of the angels sang to the dragon, neener, neener, neener. They didn't, I'm just being silly. Verse 6, the woman, listen, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. Can't even get into all the connections with the wilderness there, the wilderness of Christ, and the wilderness in Exodus. Let me just say this. There is one. 
So this is the foolish heart of the devil to, to put up those who will ruthlessly stand opposed to the covenant promises of God. What's going to happen to the covenant promises of God? They are going to ceaselessly get to where they're going. No one will be opposed to them. The downside is for the people of Israel and for those of us who follow Christ, we must be aware these covenant promises are happening in real history, in real time. It does not mean we will not have difficulty, but ruthless men cannot stop our faithful God. So what's the lesson we ought to take from this as we move into the next section? We've got two chances. Stand in front of a glacier or what? Get on top of it. So that's the second wisdom we learn from the wilderness. Wisdom from the wilderness. Wise people join with our faithful God. Wise people join with our faithful God. Look at uh, Exodus 1, beginning down in verse 15. King of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom there was Shifra and there was Pua, and said to these two midwives, which would have served as supervisors over the midwifery, midwifery, I don't know how you say it, it would have been hundreds, if not thousands, of midwives throughout the people of Israel in Goshen, and these two served as sort of the chief of the midwives. And he instructs them, when a boy is born, you're to kill the boy. And this would not have been complicated. The infant mortality rate, the guess is, how do you tell? The guess is the infant mortality rate in ancient history was about two-thirds. So if you had three kids, one of them is going to survive. So this wouldn't be terribly complicated. Uh, the baby is born, the midwife takes them over to the place where they clean them up and check them, and then she would just turn them on and say, sorry, uh, didn't make it. It would be heartbreaking, but at the same time, it was something that folks uh, became accustomed to. And so this was now the plan, this was now the effort, was to uh, eliminate or reduce the population of, of Israel by eliminating um, the boys in Israel. So we need to understand joining with God. What does it mean? If you're, if you're going to try and stand up against the glacier of God's promises, that's going to be a lot of work. Uh, the easier way to go, really, is to stand on top of the glacier, is to go where those covenant promises are going. I might liken this to the Panama Canal, not the updated version. I don't know anything about the modern version. I think they've just rebuilt it or some such thing. But the original Panama Canal, in my view, is one of the greatest engineering feats of modern times. Uh, they designed the thing so that very little energy had to be used for it to run. All the water came out of the lake, which was at the top of Panama. And so all of the water flowing each, into each of the individual locks of the Panama Canal were gravity-fed. There was no pumps. There's no need to pump water into the locks. They flowed in by gravity. The other thing they did was the doors that sealed the locks of the Panama Canal were made airtight, so they were buoyant. They floated. So the engines that opened and closed those doors were very, very small. It required very little horsepower to open and close because the idea of the designer was, why don't we figure out how the nature is working and just work with it and let uh, gravity and physics do most of the work for us? And so what the midwives are doing here as they rebel against Pharaoh is they're simply going with the stronger force. Before we make them out to be heroes, they look at this little pebble of Pharaoh, and they look at this giant, unstoppable glacier of God, and they go, um, I'm going to go with the glacier. That's bigger, and it can't be stopped, and it's going to be easier, actually, to participate in where it's going than to stand with Pharaoh 
and eventually be mowed over by the covenant promises of God. This is just simply the midwife saying, we see where the real power is. We see where the real strength is. The midwives actually see and fear the power of the Lord in the same way that Pharaoh sees and fears the power of uh, Egypt. Look what it says about the midwives. The king of Egypt called them to himself. I started reading too early. God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives, what does it say? Feared God. We didn't understand what he means by feared God. We think of people who feared God, we generally think these are the gold star Sunday school kids. Feared God means they just don't get out much. They really knew what the world was like. They wouldn't be these Pollyannish, ill-informed people. So we shouldn't take the power out of what it means to fear God. It does not mean that they were afraid to have a relationship with God. It does mean they understand He is God. And anyone in Scripture who has encountered the presence of God has done what? Freaked out. Because He's God, creator of the universe. So these midwives just simply understood who the real power was in the situation, and it wasn't Pharaoh. Pharaoh certainly was more powerful than them, but their plan here was nothing more than to hitch their wagon to the most powerful and fearful one, which in their view was God and his promises. Again, like they said, they compared the rock to the glacier and said the glacier's bigger. They were simply operating on the truths of who God is and what he's like in, in relation to his promises. And they said, God always faithful. He never loses. We want to be on his team. And so therefore, they disobeyed Pharaoh. Pharaoh came to them and said, what's the deal? You're not killing the baby boys. And what did the midwife say? I'm just going to throw this in, then we're going to move on. They lied to the guy. He said, the Hebrew women, they call the midwifery line. They send it, fill out the form online. I don't know how they did it back then. By the time we get there, bam, kid's out. She's up making dinner. Unbelievable. By the time we get there, the kid's in middle school. That's just how they do it. So we, I mean, I mean, it's silly. I mean, the fact that Pharaoh bought this story. I mean, what do you say if you're Pharaoh? Then why do you have midwives? I mean, this is not a story that is complicated to figure out. It's complete fabrication. I only say this. For some of us who think serving God means this stellar, pure ability to never do anything wrong. Is God okay with lying? Is it, this one's okay? This one and Rahab are the only two lies in history where God's okay. Is God okay? Now, now you're thinking, aren't you? No, he's not okay. Lying's wrong. Can God use people who don't get it right all the time? I better hope so. Otherwise, what are we doing here? This is just another, this is one of the reasons the Bible is so great. Any other literature document, especially ancient literature, doc, literature document, is going to paint these people as perfect people who knew, never do anything wrong. The Bible has no need for trying to present people in this perfect reputation. They lied to the guy, and they probably shouldn't have. In a moment, they said, oh, you know, we, we, we scurry to get there, and the Hebrew women, one, two, three, go! The babies are out. Nonetheless, God continues to work, and, and and doesn't even uh, scold them for their, their lying. 
Pharaoh's plan is foiled by the midwives because they were more fearful of God and his purposes than Pharaoh himself. And then we're going to leave this hanging in the tension. He says, no holds barred. If you see a baby boy, throw him in the Nile. And many scholars would say it doesn't appear that he was successful. I would suggest that's erroneous. Many babies thrown in the Nile. It's bad news. The suffering is not over uh, even yet. Pharaoh's plan was foiled by midwives who saw who the true power was. Wisdom of the wilderness, wise people join with God. They don't abandon God's purposes just because they're going through difficult times. God's redemptive plan throughout all of history and here in just chapter 2 of the Bible is this. Bring a savior. Bring a man who can redeem people from his sins. Bring a man who will undo all of the devil's schemes. Bring a man who will be able to operate God's purpose of redemption even though the devil throughout all of history is going to attempt to cut that off. Book of Esther. What does the devil try to do through Haman? Destroy Israel. Why? Because he doesn't like Israel? Well, certainly he doesn't. Why really? He doesn't want Jesus to show up. And God has purposed through his promise with Abraham to bring the Messiah through his people Israel, and his promises cannot be stopped. The wisdom of the wilderness, ruthless people cannot stop God, and wise people join with our faithful God. Okay, a couple of things maybe just to say, well, how does this land with us today? Two things. Ecclesiastes 7.10. And by two things, I mean half a dozen. Ecclesiastes 7.10. This is something we struggle with, and I know that the people of Israel struggled with during that time, is this. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says this, Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. What's Solomon saying here? Every now and then we'll do this. What do we do? You remember the good old days? Anybody ever said that? If you haven't, you're probably just not old enough yet. What, what's the problem with the good old days? Let's be honest. They weren't as good as we thought. Our brain does a really good job of over time get, helping us to forget the stuff we didn't like and remembering only the stuff that was amazing, especially if there's stuff nowadays we don't like. Remember the good old, Do you think Israel was doing that as they were sitting in the, there wondering at their jobs, working themselves? At, you remember back when Joseph was in charge? Oh, it was amazing. This is lame. God is lame. This is really important to remember because another time is going to come in the future. They're going to leave uh, Egypt, and they're going to be out in the wilderness, and Egypt is going to be pursuing them. And what are they going to say to Moses? Oh, we remember the days in Egypt. We would sit around pots of meat. So what will happen is things are going to go from worse to bad, or wait, from bad to worse, and when they get out there, they're going to look at the days under Pharaoh and say, do you remember the good old days? When all we had to do was work sun up to sundown and watch people around us die of illness and injury, it was so great. There's no such thing as the good old days. What we understand is God is working in the good times, God is working in the hard times, in the up times and the down times. His promises are constantly being fulfilled in our life, in the contours of the ups and the downs. The times of flourishing and the times of want. In fact, for the people of Israel, likely, 
God brought about this significant time of suffering in Egypt so that it was, when it was time to obey him and leave Egypt, they actually would. Do you think they would want to leave and follow Moses if everything was just as good as it was under Joseph? Moses says, hey guys, let's leave Egypt and take a walk in the desert for 40 years. They say, why would we want to do that? Everything's great here. God likely is using this very difficult time in the lives of the people of Israel to motivate obedience when it was time for obedience to come. They might not have if everything was hunky-dory. Think through your Christian life. How many times would you mark those significant periods of growth in your Christian life as those times where you were going through the most difficult things? I think for most of us, that probably would be the case. Look at John 16, 33 with me. Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have your best life now, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I shouldn't use that joke anymore. I'm going to work that sucker over until you stop buying his books. Did you hear that I read it wrong? I'm not even trying to be polite at this point. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have become the unstoppable glacier that is going to overcome everything in my path. Nothing is going to stop the promises of Christ. Not good times, not bad times. Nothing is going, he says, I have overcome everything in this world. I guarantee you one thing, Jesus says, in this life you will have difficulty. Hebrews 4.11 ties in with this. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so no one may fall short. I should say I'm having trouble reading no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive to enter that rest. He's comparing our rest in Christ with the rest of the people of Israel entering the promised land. The best way to compare this is this young fella named Caleb. And by young fella, I mean an old dude. He got to Israel, he got to the promised land, and it was time to enter the rest. And what did he say? I'm going to take Hebron. What's the problem with Hebron? just had giants, said, uh, listen, Caleb, kind of old, uh, I don't know if your memory is kind of going, uh, but you can't fight giants, but Caleb strove to live a life of obedience, knowing God had given them victory, he says, those giants can't stop the promises of God, I am going to let my life of striving be informed by the rest God has given. So we're not striving in order to have rest. Why do we strive? Because we have rest. Caleb fought giants in Hebron because he knew we already had the rest of God. So we have rest in Christ, and so we can strive to be obedient and faithful to God even in the midst of tribulation. Because we have rest, not rest from trouble, but rest knowing we have a relationship with God that never ends. Okay, last thing. There's a guy named Joseph. He was the leader of Egypt, and he led all of Israel into a great time of abundance, and it seemed to last for hundreds of years. 
What's the problem with Joseph? Really good at leading Egypt. Really good at maybe bringing prosperity for 100 years or 200 years. What's the problem? He can't do it for eternity. And one of the things Exodus tells us about Joseph, as one author would say, Joseph was good. We just need a better one of those. We need somebody who can bring this kind of rest that will last forever. And Joseph's life is a pattern of what Christ does, but Christ does it perfectly. Christ draws us into his rest and provides everything we need through his death on the cross. Even though we're rebellious, even though we sin against him, he says, I will bring you into my family if you trust me, that what I did on the cross was for your forgiveness. I will bring you into my covenant that will work its way out in the contours of your life. So when you go through suffering, you will know my promises are there. When you go through good times, you will know my promises are there. But my promise is this, my kingdom will last forever. Not a couple hundred years, not 425 years. His kingdom, once inaugurated, will never end. He is much better than Joseph could ever be because Jesus can't be stopped. Wisdom of the wilderness, especially if you're in it right now. You can't stop God. And the difficulty, maybe it feels that way, but we have to understand what his word is saying. Those times of wilderness cannot get in God's way. His promises to you are absolutely certain, not based on you, but based on him. Secondly, in the wilderness, the temptation is to say, what's the deal with God? Who needs him? And the wisdom of the wilderness says this, wise people join with God even in the midst of that great difficulty because those promises are unstoppable and their destination, the kingdom of heaven, is certain. 